0: This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. I'm Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about Great Irish Albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at learn and sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Nina Hines, Therapy, That Petrol Emotion, Blue in Heaven, Whipping Boy, and many, many more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking, And sharing. Now, some of the November 1982 reviews in the UK music press for If I Die, I Die by Virgin Prunes could at best be described as lukewarm. Time is a funny thing though, because fast forward eight years to the first reissue of the album, and the music press had definitely changed its tune. In his August 1990 retrospective review, Leo Finley wrote in Select Magazine that the virgin prunes were Dublin's stones to U2's clean-cut Beatles image. I like that line. He continued, the guys who'd hang about Grafton Street in dresses in the daytime and spend nights preparing for gigs and atrocity exhibitions. But despite their overt exhibitionism, they were always capable of producing splendidly minimal rock tunes. In The Enemy's 1990 review, Jerry Smith wrote that, If I Die, I Die stands as a delicious concoction of mysterious depth that vaults from the incessant pop of Baby Turns Blue to the poetic sweep of Theme for Thought and the dramatically unfathomable Badachong. He continued, It was the nearest that these rampant art terrorists came to capturing the malevolent spirit of their live incarnation. Rampant art terrorists, that's another great line. Now these reviews are so completely at odds with Matt Snow's original enemy review of the album published back on the 27th of November 1982. The Virgin Prunes operate comfortably within current modern rock conventions and this, their first LP, is an occasionally interesting but largely unremarkable affair, he wrote. Now most listeners will probably know the origins of the Virgin Prunes, Mid-70s, Dublin's Northside, Cedarwood Road. A group of teenagers growing up create their own sanctuary for outsiders. A secretive world they called Lipton Village. Fiona and Hanvey became Gavin Friday, Paul Hewson became Bono, Dave Evans became The Edge and Dirk Roan became Googie. Describing this world, Googie once told the Enemy that Lipton Village is a village in the head. He said it represents how we got together through this understanding we all had. It's very real because we bring it into our everyday life. It relates to our values and what we see in other people. Virgin Prunes was fronted by Gavin Friday and fellow villagers Googie and David Id Strongman played bass, Dick Evans played guitar and Pod was on drums. Following Pod's early departure, he was replaced by Hal Akabinti, who in turn was replaced by Mary denelon In their early days, The band abandoned traditional rock and roll tropes in favour of performance art, installations and the avant-garde. Early gigs were often staged in performance spaces and galleries rather than pubs and clubs. Their live shows were legendary confrontational events. Audiences were often simultaneously shocked and bemused. Not for nothing did Mark Prendergast in his book Irish Rock describe the Virgin Prunes as the most overtly subversive rock group ever to come out of the genre. Here's my old friend Jim O'Mahony talking about Gavin Friday and the Virgin Prunes. This is an outtake from my documentary No Journey's End, the story of Michael O'Shea, which featured on episode six of the podcast.
1: Gavin Friday, for example, is looked upon as he's almost like Ireland's Scott Walker. Yes. But at the time, he was a deviant, but, yeah. like, he was a dangerous deviant. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, I remember the, the Virgin Prunes. And you'd see the Virgin Prunes walking around Dublin, but uh, wearing dresses. But they were, like, big dockers wearing dresses. There was nothing effeminate about them or anything. You wouldn't... They didn't get grief off people because they'd probably kill you. Yeah. But, again, it was this scene that really existed on the fringes. So that scene was very much kind of out there. And I don't think... There's ever really been another Irish music scene that was out there like that so much.
0: I love that line from Jim. He was a deviant, but he was a dangerous deviant. The Virgin Prunes left Dublin for London in 1979 and then spent the next couple of years gigging throughout Europe where they enjoyed a huge cult following. The band moved to Berlin and was fated in France, Holland, Belgium, Italy and Germany. Virgin Prunes released their debut single, 2010s, on their own baby records in February 1981. This was followed up with Moments and Mine in August. Then in November and December 1981 came the ambitious A New Form of Beauty project, an exhibition at the Douglas Hyde Gallery in Trinity and four releases on different formats, a 7-inch, a 10-inch, a 12-inch and a cassette. With Red Nettle, the band also contributed one of the standard tracks to C81, the enemy's influential compilation tape. Though loved in Europe, the UK music press of the day had a real love-hate relationship with the band. Articles about the band were sometimes positive but more often downright negative. Indeed, many were vitriolic, caustic, simply nasty, or indeed sometimes, I think, laced with an anti-Irish sentiment. The Virgin Prunes are Irish. This has got nothing whatsoever to do with the comically inept state of their performance art, wrote Chris Boyne in the Enemy. He continued, but it might explain the presence of a partisan audience largely consisting of Irish exiles prepared to put up with their nonsense. Ouch. The first time I saw the Prunes, I couldn't tell if their vocalists were male or female because of their dresses and the bad lighting, wrote Caroline Harper in the Melody Maker. She continued, but the lighting was bright enough this time and I managed to see just how ugly they are. Ow. Oh. Whereas you two are clean-cut and direct, again wrote Matt Snow the enemy, the prunes attempt to intrigue and mystify with a shambolic pretense of spontaneity and a clutter of gothic horror props. Ooh. Now you'll hear later how Gavin and Googie robbed some of those very props from a fire-damaged hickeys in Dublin, but I digress. Helen Fitzgerald, who had written for Vox magazine back in Dublin before moving to London in 1981, seemed to get the virgin prunes. Reaving a gig in the Enemy, she declared, "...the prunes were spectacular as always." She continued, "...they were never less than brilliant. Gavin and Googie were in fine fettle, mixing and juxtaposing, old and new, in an aggressively lucid conglomeration of bizarre imagery and teasing challenges. What came next for the band? Well, Wire's Colin Newman was hired as a producer and the band decamped to Windmill Lane in mid-1982 to produce If I Die, I Die. Rather than adopting a conventional A-side, B-side format, the sides of the record were given brown and blue colours, signalling earth and fire respectively, or primitive and then urban. The music on each side reflected these moods, Vox magazine at the time described it as a mythical side which is soft, acoustic and extremely sensitive and it has a typical prune side, heavy on the head and deeply rooted in worldly affairs. Producer Colin Newman was interviewed in the same issue of Vox and stated that with the prunes I've attempted to organise them so that they would deliver their best. It's going to be a very well-produced album and he was right, it was a brilliant sounding album. Now my old friend Jim O'Mahony, who you heard from earlier, has a framed poster in his living room of a gig from the 28th of October 1982 in McGonagall's in Dublin that was billed as Virgin Prune's Say Goodbye. Now I've often heard Jim say that this was his favourite gig of all time, so I asked him to explain why. They didn't really do gigs, they gave performances. Individually, they all had great presence on stage, in particular Gavin Googie and David, who usually opened the show. People tended not to get too near the stage as they were also quite scary. The performances were hugely theatrical and often quite shocking. They pushed serious boundaries regarding gender that no other band was doing. Jim continues. The setlist was mainly the songs that would end up on the album, but much roar and a bit dirtier live. I think this gig was them changing direction musically, visually and artistically, hence it was billed as Virgin Prunes Say Goodbye. Their life shows changed after this. The Heresy box set gives a good indication of what they sounded like. We managed to get backstage after the gig and chatted to David for ages, but the rest of them were all arguing with each other. I went into Freebird the following morning and stole the poster, which is framed on my wall here at home. The best Irish band I've certainly ever seen live and it was a privilege to be one of the lucky ones to witness this incredible and unique performance. The words of Jim O'Mahony there giving us a real sense of The Virgin Prunes live. Now at the start of this episode I said time is a funny thing. I believe that If I Die I Die was out of step at the time of its release and because of that it has thankfully stood the test of time. So here we go to hear knows when. Great Irish albums revisited, episode twenty-three. If I die, I die, by Virgin Prunes. It's my great pleasure
1: to welcome Gavin Friday. Lennox Street, I think, in the little studio, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I think it was just before lockdown, was it?
0: I think it would have been. Yeah.
1: It was about Michael O'Shea, wasn't it?
0: That was it. Yeah. You must have those recordings nearly ready, Gavin. Do you?
1: I do. Sorry, I'm just putting the dog up beside me or he'll, he'll moan. I do. Yes, I'm I'm in the finishing process of this album, my Gavin Friday album. And it I have to hand it up by the 20th of December. So I have two vocals to do and a bit of tidying up. So, but it's it's mainly there, yeah.
0: Brilliant. That's taken a couple of years, so hasn't it? The whole pandemic obviously slowed things down with that, I imagine
1: does but I don't tend to work on timelines regards, you know I mean I'm older so I, I, and I and I tour very rarely uh, and I make an album when I want to and how I want to and also I think you have to make an album when you want to say something or have something to say it shouldn't be a conveyor belt thing just for the sake of it do you know that way? It yeah. happens in your youth every two, three years you bring an album out and I just went but, uh, but yeah, I, strangely enough, the week I went to start mixing it was the week the pandemic kicked in and it, it everything went hold. And then I said, you know, I'm going to wait till this is fully over because I don't like finishing something and leaving it on a shelf. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the pandemic. I still think it's still fucking us up. I don't think it's over. Uh, not the pandemic, uh, but the whole avalanche post that. Uh, God knows, God knows. Uh, it looks like the whole, it looks like the pandemic was a demo for what we're all going to go through in the next couple of years. Do you know what I mean?
0: Come here to me. How do you feel about um, these anniversaries? You know, like uh, there's a sticker on the front of this new reissue, the 40th anniversary. How do you feel about having to go back and uh reappraise work to an anniversary date. How does all that kind of sit with you, Gavin?
1: It sits with me okay. I mean, I'm just really happy that I've been able to go back into the Virgin Prunes archives and get it out there and have it on a label uh, that are distributing it and releasing it again. Uh, I mean, the Virgin Prunes material wasn't even on streaming services really until this June, July. I did a deal with BMG late last year for the whole back catalogue. Yes, it, it it coincided when we looked at everything. I said, wow, if I die, die I will be 40 years old this November. And they said, well, let's make that the first vinyl that we re-release because it's seen as our debut album, which it sort of is, but A New Form of Beauty was a sort of a, Complex project of seven inch, 10 inch, 12 inch cassettes, shows, all sorts of things. So it wasn't officially an album. Yeah, I, I feel really good about releasing it all. Uh, I'm very proud of the Virgin Prunes. So, and having it out there our way, like, you know, artwork and the mastering, all of that, it, it, it's just great.
0: I screenshot this a few years ago off Twitter, Gavin. I thought it was brilliant. Hopefully you'll get a kick off this, Okay, Someone mentioned the Virgin Prunes and a guy who, um, he's a journalist in the UK for a small, like, local newspaper. In response, he said, um, I saw the Virgin Prunes live once, like nothing else. Still not sure what to make of them. In response to that, another guy jumped on and said, never heard of them. Describe. So the first guy came back and he said, uh, like a load of pagans in robes, stomping around, face paint, weird hair, lots of wailing. I seem to remember flower being thrown, them, not me. It was quite a performance.
1: Yeah, it sounds like us.
0: That's a good distillation, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah. I mean, we were infamous for our performances and that sounds one of the tamer ones, actually. But yeah, I mean, the performances were as crucial as the recordings to the band, possibly performance was a real forte. And yeah, I mean, what can you say? The wailing and the pagans and all of that. I mean, we delved into lots of imagery and lots of influences. Strangely enough, we delved into Irish influences. I mean, the Irish really were the originators of pagans and druids and all that primitivism.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And we, we we took that as a very big influence in a primeval way, which which we cover a bit in "If I Die, I Die," like stripping away everything, all the sort of artifacts, and and basically going going tribal, going almost naked, and we grasped in amongst things like. Irish influences. I mean, Shannos, the old way of singing. We didn't actually sing Shannos, but we were touching on it. That with sort of all the Leidenesque and Bowie influences. It was our version of Shannos of in, in that style of singing.
0: You told The Enemy, Gavin, back in um, summer 82, actually, just before the album came out, you talked about how you were up near Dundalk, you were in a pub. And you heard a couple of Shan No singers in a pub and the family thing of like, you know, someone having to get up and do a song. And and you were saying that uh, that actually really influenced what you were going to do then with If I Die, this idea of going back. I'm reading the quote here, Gavin. It says, "Um, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. This whole feeling just from going into a little pub for a drink on the new album. We're going to do one side and we're going to try and get that feeling in the way that we sing. So I suppose that's the brown side, really, of the album, Gavin, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, and it is interesting because, it being like from Dublin, I mean, there was Irish influences, and in, in that we lived in Dublin, and my father was quite, quite a an O'Skelian man, even though he didn't speak it. I suppose more of a Republican, and we were all. My real name is Fanon O'Hanover, uh Fanon Hanvey. So it was always there, but. To my shame, in them days, Dublin was the pale and we hardly went outside the country. So when I did hear Chanos in a a raw way, like in those pubs, it did hit me. And it did feel, I mean, in 82, it was post-punk. And we'd seen sort of the shambles of what was punk rock. And you saw the sort of commercialism of it. So we were trying to get back to something even more authentic. So we we took that on, along with like even taking on some. I mean, there's bowrons, there's didgeridoos, there's there's tin whistles. There's a lot of stuff that no one would expect the virtual yeah. group to be using on, on on that brown side.
0: Do you know what struck me when I, I I've been listening back to it, Gavin? The brown side could have been released last year.
1: Well, that's that's what I find quite interesting is how timeless it is.
0: It is, isn't it? Like, like literally, it could have come out last year.
1: Yeah, it, it feels like that. I think w- what's telling on the blues side is there's certain things like the snare drum sound from 1982. Yeah, which, you know, from since Joy Division Puken had a, drum, a record, everyone was copying their sound uh, and uh, and even guitar sounds and the compressions on them. Uh, but on the Brown side, we used like authentic drums and, and toms and bowrons and hand drums. Um, and Dick used acoustic guitars, yeah. mandolins, along with his psychedelic stuff. I mean, the track Baudekong, which is the last track on... On, on on the brown side, that's
0: got barons anyway. Definitely,
1: it's a baron is the main yeah. thing. And Dick letting loose in his psychedelia, so it has this sort of agelessness about it. And even the blue side, I found it quite contemporary lyrically. "Baby Turns Blue" is is basically about kids, young people, self harming, taking drugs, OD mental health issues in a weird way, and sort of quite poignant and quite relevant to today, the transgenderism of how we dressed, and even Walls of Jericho, which is an anti-fundamentalist religion. So all these topics, I thought, there's very little here that isn't relevant to 2022, which which made me feel really good.
0: I'm going to um, play you a clip from um, a French radio interview
1: Oh, my God.
0: Now, what I love about this is you touch on some of the things there that you just mentioned. Okay, so this is from about two years after the album came out, Gavin. You're in the middle of a French tour. You pay visit to a little radio station in Saint-Étienne in in France. You're asked basically to explain yourselves because the night before you played a gig and some members of the French audience were still, even though it was 84, there was still at the kind of spitting and... Some members of the French audience had called you a bunch of faggots. So the French DJ is just basically trying to get you to explain yourselves, Gavin. So here it is.
2: The clothes we wear, is like you mentioned the words transvestite and uh, drag, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, on stage, we're not trying to look like women or act like women. And we're not in drag. Because drag is a man trying to look like a woman or be a woman. I think on stage uh w how we dress is very much an expression of of what we are. Uh, but that doesn't mean that like we're transvestites. It's like y you were asking us about like the sexuality and that. On de la but if you if you look at it like we're not trying to sort of talk about sexuality or that, we're trying to Mais on n'est pas like, en train de parler de sexuality, no. If you, if you meet somebody like you're at a, at a table and there's six people si vous rencontrez et, des um, personnes à une table that, vous êtes six Chacun one, one person am another person says i'm a lesbian another person says, i'm a homosexual another person am a, a bisexual je yeah. définis moi je suis so bédé, um, um, moi je suis lesbienne moi je suis travesti immediately ah, you start thinking immédiatement vous pensez you know, generally i'm generalizing en, en général hein, je généralise là he goes to bed with boys Il va au she lit avec des garçons elle va Il au lit avec des filles and it's like this is here in bien, the head bien, bien, bien. Mm. but uh what's more important is um is is what the people are and what they see and what they are as people ce qui est beaucoup plus important c'est so ce que sont les gens vraiment like you should be talking to people vous devriez parler des, sex. plutôt aux gens pas à leur sexe okay. yesterday we had some anti gay manifestation on the audience from her on the audience, some people were are very uh, anti-gay, they spit on you and they call you faggots and things like that. Well, I don't, I don't know what faggot is in French, so I don't know what they got. But uh, I don't know why you know. an audience can say what they like. We're not going to say, I'm not going to stop and say I'm not gay.
0: That's a blast from the past, Gavin, isn't it?
1: I haven't heard the word trisexual in a while. It's great to find stuff like that. Well, it's so, it's, I mean, Jesus, it's 40 years ago or four, 38 years ago, whatever. But I still stick by that. I think you know, sexuality is so complex. It's wider than the ocean, deeper than the sea. Uh, and the big thing, as you find it out, as <clears throat> as there's this whole, you know, gender fluidity madness, but it's not really madness. All it is, is young people not wanting to call People gay or bent or that. It's just 20 year olds given their own identity today. But it's far more liberal. I mean, you know, the era we grew up in, where homosexuality was illegal till 93, I think. Uh, same sex marriage just legalized. So quite a shy little boy there, but quite insightful.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Our, our clothes really were were shields and weapons shields as in you know from a very early age growing up in Dublin I was always very expressive with clothes as a young kid especially from being bullied and being called a fucking pansy or a queer or whatever derogatory thing so rather than keep getting the digs and I stood up for myself and the way I stood up for myself was with my clothes. So my clothes became this shield. And it was quite a big thing in Dublin back then. You know, in the late 70s, to even have earrings was a, a cause to get your head beaten up. But to wear dresses and clothes the way we did and makeup and our hair, it was pretty much, you know, a red flag to the bulls. But it was so liberating and it became my my shield. Very few people. Re- pe- I think I've, I've frightened people more than shocked them, because it wasn't. Um, when, when the word transvestite, transsexual, I mean, it, 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 that's developed so much over the years. i not developed. People have interpreted differently. So it's quite naive to call a man on a dress a transvestite back then, but there was nothing really overtly feminine about the virgin prunes. They were were quite sort of aggressive Uh, and I've said this many times. I I wore a four-yard skirt, Doc Martens, a fishnet and you didn't know if I was going to kiss you or kill you. It had that threat. Uh, and, And you know, we were I always said, what was the line I used to say? We were the bastard children of Uh, Ziggy Stardust and Johnny Rotten and it really was that
0: 80, 81 a couple of singles that whole series as you mentioned earlier A New Form of Beauty the different formats wasn't it the Douglas Hyde Gallery there was the big um corresponding performance that went with that if I recall and then you told me before Gavin that at some stage then there was a conversation with Jeff Travis from Rough Trade where there was talk of doing an album and you told me before that kind of initially you weren't really into that that you almost had to be kind of convinced a little bit maybe he was keen to kind of get a a safe pair of hands in terms of a producer and then eventually you decided on Colin Newman. So I think of that pretty much fleshed out up to maybe 82, where where Colin comes over and you record the album.
1: Yeah, we did exactly that. It, it, you know, when post-punk movement happened, which is really 78 on, uh, really till, let's say, like 83, 84, uh, Naively we were looking for we naively we wanted to change the world musically. We thought what we were doing, we were going to do it like nobody else did. We our touchstones were what Bowie was doing in Berlin and what public image were doing and what the pop group were doing, which was more avant-garde slanted than rock and roll slanted. Um when we went in to do the new Former Beauty project. We, we we said it isn't just music. It's four parts: one, two, three, four. Will be vinyls and cassette. We will then do a, a a two day exhibition where we built we built these sort of installations and sound noise installations and physical art installations, and then we had. A two-day performance, a two-show performance in the Edmund Burke, which is adjacent to, to to the Hugh Lane, not the Hugh Lane. What was it? Called?
0: Douglas the, Hyde, I think. Douglas is it?
1: Hyde. Yeah, it, it, we really thought we were like pushing the bottom. When Jeff said, I think Jeff knew <clears throat> that there's one thing that's quite interesting about the Virgin Prunes music. Even though people really criticised us, said we couldn't play, we couldn't this, we couldn't that, where it's sort of the opposite, if you actually listen back. Uh, Dick is a profound guitarist. Uh, the boy who taught Edge how to play. Uh, and you can you can hear that in certain bits. But not only that, Strongman is quite a melodic and an interesting bass player. Uh, but Jeff always knew that like, some of our stuff was as noisy and as fucked up as, say, throbbing Gristle. But some of it was as tangible as pop or as avant-garde as public image. And I think he knew there was there was kernels of sort of tangibility in there. And we listened. But it was really when he put the, the cherry in front of us of working with Colin Newman, who was one of the lead men from the band Wire, which I was a huge fan of and Dick was a huge fan of. And I think the fact that it was a musician working with us rather than a producer. And and he came over to Dublin. We rehearsed with him for a week and we recorded it in three weeks. And it was incredible in that what he thought us more than anything was discipline. I had this one take and that's it attitude to recording vocals. And we had this improvisational thing going on and he, he he sort of was going you don't have to do one take why don't you try four or five takes Gavin why don't you lay down your track and see what other stuff you could do like arrangements he was basically teaching us so it was it was a huge thing even though the album was of all the productions probably the most pristine, it still has the essence of what the band were. So we really had nothing to be afraid of yeah. of us. You know how, how deeply you take your indie, when I say independent, I don't mean indie charts. I mean real independent credibility. It it, it was like a gospel. Uh, you can see it in young bands now they don't go north-south side because it's not the north side. But more in the kudos, so that, you know, you can, you can hear it out of the greatness of the Fontaines, D.C. They have that, you can't do this, you have to do that. And um, it's part of being young and punky, really, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a great quote from Colin. I just thought this was spot on, Gavin, when I read it. He says, in those days you could see the hills around Dublin from everywhere in the city. The prunes were like a manifestation of that surrounding wildness brought into the city. And I think that's perfect, again, in summing up the difference between the brown, more kind of primal wildness, the mystical side of the record, and then the blue, the more, I suppose I'd call it the more urban side of the record.
1: Absolutely, exactly what I call it, the, the urban side um you know the fire and the other one was the water and the and, and 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 the earth but uh it really was uh, dublin really was a baby compared to what it is now you know i'm so i'm actually very proud of how much we pushed out so much back then but really as you, as you listen to the innocent boy in france 20 30 odd years ago 38 years ago we we weren't overcalculated. A lot of people condemned the prunes as posers and we weren't posers. We liked clothes. We liked art. We liked improvising. We liked pushing out the thing. We didn't want to be in a rock and roll band. We didn't want. We didn't care about hit singles. We never actually hand on heart never went out to make anything commercial.
0: But it's interesting because I have a press release here from Rough Trade for the release of Baby Turns Blue. And of course, Rough Trade have to sell records. That's the game they're in. So the press release reads, um, Virgin Prunes, Dublin's most unusual cultural institution, who some should say should be institutionalized, unleash the first result of their recording collaboration with Colin Newman. Baby Turns Blue, which heralded a shift in the prune style from an abstract and conceptual to more concise and beaty, almost more accessible. Rough trade are trying to sell records, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. And it was more accessible. Yeah. But if you want to even look back and delve into, say, the early parts of A New Form of Beauty, part one, which is Sandpaper Lullaby, the seven inch single that's very accessible. It was very humbly and meekly produced by ourselves, but there always was a sort of a melodic accessibility in us when we wanted to go there. Uh, the track David Bussaris performs on on If I Die Die, Ballad of the Man is beyond accessible, yeah. but in a quirky way, uh, I mean, Davey was a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. So Bruce Springsteen influences coming out of A Virgin Prunes, Just the contradictions were so mad. They were great, you know.
0: I was looking back at some of the old press cuttings, Gavin. The live reviews from 81, 82 in the UK Music inkies. It's extraordinary because you end up on some bills with a lot of kind of still kind of punky... You know, like you're playing with Theatre of Hate, you're playing with the meteors. Quite often, these kind of punky audiences are literally just silenced by your performances. And other times then, they're kind of quite violently reacting to the performances. There's a lot of gobbing still into 81 still. You said, we preferred taking support slots where the crowd promises to be a bit hostile.
1: We did. And weirdly enough, it was later in Britain. Britain was always a bit edgy to us. Uh, I think in the early reviews and that we didn't, we didn't fit the category of what a British, uh, an Irish band should be in Britain. Uh, The Irish bands then were the Rats, U2, uh, basically, they were the only bands people knew. Um, we, 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 we were poles apart. Like in theory, we, we, we should have been something from, you know, Finsbury Park in London, or or something, hanging out with Susie and the Banshees or Johnny Lydon, and we just didn't fit. Uh, and I always felt there was a little bit of anti anti Virgin prunes. Uh, that changed more so eighty three, eighty four where we were playing our own gigs, and especially northern England, like Manchester and that. But the real home we found was in Europe, Central Europe, France, Germany, Holland, Belgium, Italy. That's really where where we were embraced.
0: In that French interview, you actually mentioned that you have travelled from Austria to the gigs in France. So long journeys back in those days, Gavin, but obviously gigs there for you.
1: We, we toured from... 81 to 85, relentlessly, including an American stint, which is a very rare thing in 83 for bands. Uh, but uh oh, Jesus, I remember we were so popular in France. We'd go to France for a month and we'd be playing yes. like everywhere. Uh, my favorite in memories or my most vivid memories are when the wall was still up in, in Germany, in Berlin. And you'd have to go to Corridor. So it would take nine hours in in a van to get to fucking Berlin. But my God, the days and the gigs in Berlin, there were a sight to be seen and, and such a, an extraordinary place back then. Rough
0: Trade put up about 10,000 sterling for the album. and um, And you told me that. Your first thing was to hire Ursula Steigler. Oh, she was well known at the time as, um, I suppose, would you call her a fashion photographer? I suppose you would have called her.
1: She was one of Ireland's biggest fashion photographers. She was German, big fashion photographer. Steve Avril, the infamous Steve Rappet from um, Radiators, Radiators and did all Virgin Prune's covers and and U2's covers. And he suggested her because, you know, he suggested for Pagan Love Song where we were getting into this primal color thing. He says, you're really going breaking borders here. You want to be much more colorful. I suggest you go here. And when I met with Ursula, she was a massive Kurt Vile and fan and she sort she of German culture, which was like a bird singing to I me. You know, hit I hit it like off this. so. We did. Yeah, we spent about four grand, nearly half of the budget and if you look at the 40 years later it makes sense like we we invested wisely and we always did invest in our artwork but um jeff said that's the budget that's the price of budget bowie would use on an album cover and my answer was well that's exactly the answer yes
0: so you headed off up to up the wicklow mountains basically i think wasn't it and you went feral for a couple of days really i suppose
1: we did. Uh, it was it was a, a forest that Googie found near Glenda Lock, because uh, Googie is very much the wild one of the band when it comes to nature. And he suggested this location. We went feral. We brought along uh, Mary, the drummer's younger sister, because we had this Googie had this idea of like we're like a tribe where Ursula says, well, if you have a young girl, you're going to have to have another girl along with her. So her assistant Marion Smythe was ordered to take her clothes off, as well. So uh, and, and and what a great call, you know, politically correct this back then. But she was right. Uh, the other the other shots that blue 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 side was was referenced in in the indoor shots with fire, and they were filmed and, and photographed in. A place we call the Beautiful House, which is on Essex Street, near the Clarence Hotel. That's Temple Bar, really, isn't it? It is Temple Bar, yeah. 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 And yes. it,
0: Obviously, Temple Bar in 1982, Gavin, did not look like it does today. Would that have been an old run-down, kind of a derelict house,
1: would it have been? A derelict house, we squatted in it, actually. Okay. Uh, we, we recorded a lot of new form of beauty in it. And it was our h q when we say squatted we just basically lived there at the weekends recorded we tape recorders it, it was our hQ and um, that's it was massive I think it's now the design yard uh oh yeah
0: I know where that is yeah
1: yeah that's what is that that we we lived there God there should be a plaque outside that cavern well hopefully maybe <laughs> <laughs> do not enter <laughs> It's
0: so at odds with the photos from from Wicklow, though, isn't it? Fire! I, I'm looking here. I've you've my written... original version there of it, Gavin. And um, you've the mannequin in the corner, shrouded and all. It's like an old Victorian dress or something on the mannequin. Well, actually,
1: it's a wedding dress. That was courtesy of Hickey's in uh, Henry Street, which just about a couple of weeks before uh, the photo shoot, I got a call at like one in the morning in the house, Googie saying... Gav, quick, I've got the van. I heard there's a fire in hickeys and there's all these mannequins burning, wearing wedding dresses. We should go and nab some. So we went in and robbed about six mannequins and used them as props, courtesy of hickeys. Brilliant.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. You blew over, I think you told me before, it was nearly five or six grand of the 10 grand budget. It was blown on the photographs. And then it was a case of what's left to get spent in windmill and obviously Colin to get the album finished. The album comes out over in the UK and I was looking at some old reviews. The NME review, it's quite unusual Insofar as they don't really know what's going on with that first half of the album, the brown half, so they their reference points. It's like Pink Floyd's *Ummaguma*, and they mention *Jethro Tull*. They're the reference points they use for the um, for the brown part of the album.
1: Uh, the, the the Pink Floyd stuff I can see with the psychedelia with Dick's guitar, Jethro Tull, maybe the fact we'd whistles. I think that's it. Yeah, uh, but also that's lazy journalism. When yeah. when we performed live, I think the album really came to life, especially that side. I mean, if you go to Google or YouTube, you go Virgin Prunes, there's a, a French program called Echo de Banan. And if you Google Oula Canacula, Decline and Fall, you'll see one of the great performances and actually caught uh, films really well. But it really had that sort of almost like the first thing you said to me, these pagans in long dresses and robes, uh, the robe I actually robbed. We, we ended up fucking robbing everything in our early days, if not robbing rough trade of all the money to, to, to do the photographs. But what's the what's the college where you train trained to be a priest? Maynooth. Maynooth. You will not believe we got the Virgin Prunes in late 1981. Maynooth College, we played a gig there. And afterwards, we were in the dressing rooms. we saw all these old priest robes and, and stuff, and we put a load in the bag and went back to Dublin. So we were actually wearing pagan robes, if you want to call the Catholic priests, but because they were they, they were prim, they were pagans i mean what, what in essence, what you know the catholic church was was the big big ante for me back then.
0: How was the album perceived at the time? Can you remember, Gavin?
1: Uh, in Britain and in Ireland, I, I remember Bill Graham, who is a
0: <clears throat> well. Bill Graham was a great writer,
1: sure. a great ra- writer, and, and sort of, you know, he, he was the Lester Bangs of Ireland. He discovered so many bands. He spoke. He, he I remember him coming to. Cedarwood Road in late 78 because he had heard about not only is this band called U2 there's another band called the Virgin Prunes and they come from this area north. and he, he just knocked on the door saying somebody said Gavin Friday lives here I want to know about the Virgin Prunes so he, he really flew the flag for U2 and the Virgin Prunes in the early days but he he gave it a great review uh But everything else, I think, was sort of ignored in Ireland. You know, you get a few plays on Dave Fanning.
2: Uh,
1: England, as I said, they were very, I I never really worried about them. I just said, fuck them. Uh, And and where in Europe, it was just lauded. I mean, Holland, Belgium, Germany, they just adored us
0: was 't heresy commissioned by some French cultural uh, organization
1: yes there was a there was two th- France what we really, what kicked off in France we we played a place called the Rex Club in, in Paris in early 82 before we, we we did a if I die or die and a magazine called actuelle which I think is now defunct but it was a big magazine big cultural magazine they sort of um fell in love with us and came to dublin and filmed us and photographed us and there was a big sort of push so when when we were making if i die i die we got a, an offer from this guy uh to do some recordings based on madness and insanity uh he came up with a title. He says, I want to call it heresy. And I want your interpretations of madness and ins- insanity. Uh, can you do this? And he was promising to box and in this beautiful, um uh, least packaging. And he paid for the recording, which he did. Uh, and in them days, there was labels like Sordid sentimental, yeah, yeah. who be quite famous for, they brought out a joy division, seven That's inch crazy. of, um, Atmosphere, I think, was the, the extraordinary one of the last things he recorded. Uh, Ian Curtis, um, Dead Souls was the other side. Um, it was a real thing to have these bespoke limited editions of 10,000. So we jumped at it, but also as we were recording If I Die, Die, we knew it was going to be more pristine and and more produced. We said, Let's release this around the same time, which which was. Like I think Heresy came out about two or three weeks afterwards. Now, Heresy wasn't distributed in record stores. You had to write away for it or whatever. Uh, But Heresy, we recorded... Windmill Lane used to do sessions where if you went in after midnight and worked till 10 in the morning, you got half price.
0: Cheaper price.
1: Yes. So we, we went in one weekend. We booked three midnight sessions. But we stayed up and wrote during the day and then recorded at night. And we had this philosophy of, let's not go to sleep. Let's just fucking write, then record, then write, not knowing what we're writing. and um, to, to almost get into that sort of trance-like sleeplessness, you know?
0: Uh, I saw it a couple of years ago in a second-hand record shop and I didn't buy it. Because I couldn't afford it at the time, but I'd be afraid to look up what it's worth now because it's probably multiples of what I could have got it for. You should always jump on it when you get the chance, I figure, and I and I didn't, and I should have, you know.
1: It's probably the rarest of all our stuff. That was some new form of beauty, but you know the good news is I have all the masters, and the opening track on Heresy is called Rhetoric, and it. It's about seven minutes long, and it's one of the most aggressive and vibiest things we've ever put down. But I looked at the masters, and I forgot that we edited it down from 14 minutes long. So I'm looking forward to when we re-release Heresy, having the original 14-minute version of this histrionic white noise
0: Would you say, Gavin, that at the time the heresy record was probably closer to the Virgin Prunes live than If I Die, I Die? Would that be fair to say?
1: No, I think the because heresy is possibly along with the beast, our most full on avant-garde in your face thing live. We would go there, I would say, of a 90 minute show. You would get 45 minutes, what the fuck, improvisation. But you'd get 45 minutes where we would play quite theatrically and quite sort of viscerally more standard versions. But I love the contrast of of If I Die and Heresy coming out more or less the same time.
0: How did Rough Trade feel about you doing a record so close to the release of
1: If I Die? They, they didn't mind. I mean, the, the great thing about... Jeff Travis was he he was a businessman, but he was very much, you know, the artist's uh, guy, if you wanted to do this. And he knew it was going to be a limited edition. But little did we know, the the label kept producing and producing because it sold out really really well. And 82, 83, 84 were the peak era. So our stuff was selling, but we never got a penny from it.
0: That seems to be the case of so many bands at the time though, doesn't it? I don't think you're alone there in, um, in not getting any money for it, you know,
1: well, unfortunately. Things haven't changed for young independent bands that much, have they? No,
0: no, not at all. Took a couple of years then for the next record, Gavin. As you said, it was like a couple of years of touring in, in Europe and then eventually the moon looked down and laughed. That was with Dave Ball from Soft Cell,
1: Early 86, 85 but the yeah. thing that happened was the nonstop touring was basically how we lived. Yeah. And when we, we went in to record, I think it was early, late 83, early 84. We started doing some sessions in Dublin and then in some in London with Dave Ball, who who we'd met through soft Cell, who were big fans. And at the same time, rough trade had folded, uh, and they dropped all their bands, uh, I remember there was, the Smiths came in then. Rough Trade folded for about two months, and then they reopened with just one band, the Smiths.
0: All the money was needed for getting those records into the charts, wasn't it really, I suppose?
1: I think it was. and You know, fair play to them. But I did resent the Gladioli and Morrissey's ass for a while. I said, who fucking paid for them? It was If I Die, I Die. You know, it was Cabaret Voltaire, The Fall. It was all these bands. Yeah. Or on, and Roof Trade, you know, they became very successful with the Smiths, but we were then laborless and no one to pay the fucking bills. So we we sort of started working and working to pay our bills. And sadly, during this thing, the band sort of started falling apart and But that's where
0: life gets in
1: the way, Gavin,
0: surely. It is. At some point, people go to hell with this. I need to earn a few bob to pay bills, you know.
1: Life gets in the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it's a strange thing because when you're a teenager, nothing gets in the way because you're not thinking about life. You're just passionate about the music. Uh, But life is getting in the way. and, And also, we were burning out. You can't set yourself on fire every day. Because eventually you'll just burn. That's what we kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and we didn't want to compromise. And it just got jaded. And it's sort of like rather than we exploded on the world, but we were imploding on ourselves. And and sadly, it just it just came to an end. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the band were more or less gone by the time the album came out. I still dragged it on for a little bit, basically to pay our debts and sort of semi-promote the, the album. Not that I dislike the album. I think there's some great things in, yeah. in, in, in The Moon Look Down. But when I look at it, isn't that what a true life does? It burns twice as bright, but burns for half as long. Yeah. And And the truth is, you know, what was I to do I remember actually being offered to join the mission of all bands when they heard, you know, and then I was offered to join Coil, and I was going, no, 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 I, 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 it was all this thing. But you see a lot of bands that started off quite avant-garde suddenly would change drop a few people, bring in one guy, reinvent them, and then suddenly they were ha- having hits. Uh, but I, I just wanted to end the band and get out you know yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't a pleasant ending but it, it wasn't the worst it just it just burnt out
0: yeah yeah it's some legacy though Kevin. you've a line here you said in retrospect that you think if i die i die is a wonderful record it has a peculiar foreverness about it sonically it's nowhere as extreme as a new form of beauty or heresy but in truth if i die i die does capture the essence of the Virgin Prunes,
1: I think so. Because you get a general A to Z of the whole thing, you, and you can feel, you know, anyone that saw the band in their heyday and when we toured, you'd feel it, you'd know it. Uh, so for that reason, I do think, and, and as you as you commented, that foreverness. It's like I can't put a timeline on the first side or the brown side. I always call the brown side the first side. It's what I play first. And it's sort of the journey you go. And um, and I played it, um, the remastered version, just on Saturday night. It came out on Friday and I played it. And I was so pleasantly surprised. It does sound quite contemporary.
0: Can you extract yourself from that listening experience and listen to it almost as... A work, Or are you reminded every couple of seconds of when you sang the song or when you wrote the words or are you reminded of the studios, the experiences, or are you able to like listen to it as an entity in and of itself?
1: A bit of both. I could listen to it as an entity. Like when Ula Kalakula came on, I was going, wow, I remember all those vocals we laid down as the as the backing And then I'm just very taken with Strongman's playing or Dick's playing. I go, you know, Sweet Home, I go, fuck, his bass playing is like pull up to the bumper. It's a boom, boom. It's like this contemporary dub thing. And I go, we were so young, but like sort of ignorantly sophisticated in, in a thing. And I think that's because the wide span of our interests as well. And then the real musical genius, Dick, who just really is profound and and possibly so underrated as a guitarist, you know. Hmm. By the way, one of the biggest influences on Kevin Shields is Dick Evans.
0: Yeah, well, you did tell me before that uh, you had told the lads to stay clear of London and go to Berlin, that you gave them contacts for a couple of promoters out there.
1: I don't know if they regret they they hate me for that or whatever, <laughs> but uh, I did. I sent them to to, to Amsterdam uh, and some promoters. Yes,
0: I love the twelve inch version of um, Baby Turns Blue. You know, but finally it makes it to a digital version of it, and it's on the CD. So it's uh, it's great to get it because I have a scratchy old version of it here. Yeah,
1: and, and but, um, well, Newman's remix is really good. That's brilliant. Yeah. I'm going to be
0: selfish and play out on my own choice, if that's okay with you. I'm going to play out on The Faculties of a Broken Heart, the 12-inch version of Baby Turns Blue. Would you be able to maybe introduce it for me and maybe set it up for me, if you don't mind, Gavin?
1: Absolutely. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to my banter. Uh, 40 years later, Baby Turns Blue, I remember remixing it, We called it The Faculties of a Broken Heart, which was to be the title of the book from A New Form of Beauty, believe it or not, the book that never got released. But this little ditty, uh, because I always saw Baby Turns Blue as a ditty, a ditty about self-harm and suicide and the terrible things young people do to themselves. What should we do if Baby Turns Blue?
0: Gavin, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure chatting to you.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you for your support. Listen, Sloan. Thanks, Paul. And uh, we'll talk soon. Look after yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. What should we tell if baby
2: turns black?
0: Friday, and the track that you heard there was The Faculties of a Broken Heart. That's the 12 inch version of Baby Turns Blue. Now, that was released all the way back on October 30th, 1982, and you can find a copy of it on the expanded 2 CD 40th anniversary edition of the album that has just been released. I want to give special thanks to Jim O'Mahony for sharing his memories of the Virgin Prunes Say Goodbye gig back in October. 1982 and in the episode notes I've shared a photograph that Jim has kindly taken for me of that beautiful poster that he robbed from Freebird Records the morning after the gig. The clip from French radio that I played, Gavin, was from Radio SWK, a radio station that broadcast in saint between 1981 and 1985. That interview was recorded on the 14th of January 1984, just over a year after the release of If I Die, I Die. You can hear the full interview on Radio SWK's archive website. That site also has some brilliant photographs and live footage of the virgin prunes. I'll leave a link to Radio SWK in the episode notes. I interviewed Gavin previously back in 2019. He contributed to my radio documentary No Journey's End, the story of Michael O'Shea. And he also spoke to me for the liner notes I wrote for Hiding from the Landlord, a compilation of Fimber Donnelly and his bands Nun Attacks, Five Go Down to the Sea and Beethoven. That interview was broadcast on an episode of Songs to Learn and Sing, my Dublin City FM radio show. The interview touched on lots of subjects not covered in this podcast. We chatted about the very early Early Days of the Virgin Prunes, The Influence of David Bowie, Post Punk Philosophies, The Fall, Vox Magazine, Michael O'Shea, Five Got Down to the Sea, Pill, The Enemies C81 cassette, My Bloody Valentine, Cottle Cochlan, and lots of other things. I'll leave a link to that interview in the episode notes. Now, The Virgin Prunes are the third Irish band who released music on Rough Trade Records that I've covered on the podcast. The others being Micra Disney, that was episode 20, and the Stars of Heaven, that was episode 7. But in total, Rough Trade have released music by 13 different Irish artists. In 2021, I broadcast an episode of the radio show that focused on all 13 of these artists. And again, you'll find a link to that radio show in the episode notes. So go to @learnandsing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast and you'll find the episode notes and further information about the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe, like and share. The theme music is called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy and it's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish rhapsody until the next one goodbye